Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today trained as a specialist physician, but gave up working as a doctor when her daughter became ill and was hospitalized. In this podcast, Dr. Santi Bhagat tells the story of what happened next and her thoughts about how medicine can deliver better results. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Santi Bhagat. You're very, very welcome to the show, Santi. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. And I understand that you originally trained in medicine, you trained in molecular diagnostics, but eventually you had to leave that side of your life. And it was related to illness in the family. Can we start there and explore exactly what happened? On July 1st, 1996, we were at the beach and we had just come back from the beach, actually. And I was starting the first day of my fellowship in endocrine pathology. And I got a call from my husband that afternoon and my daughter had been admitted to the emergency room with a seizure. She was in status epilepticus, means that a seizure that doesn't stop. So I ended up going to the emergency room and staying with her in the, staying with her in the hospital for three weeks. She was very sick. And that really was the last day I went to the hospital as a physician, but the first of many that I went to the hospital as a mother of a sick child. And so I ended up leaving medicine, not to actually to take care of my daughter as a mother, but actually to fill in all the gaps that the healthcare system wasn't providing. And it was, I experienced everything, medical misdiagnosis, lack of care coordination, and just a lot of problems in care. And we had a fantastic pediatrician, but, and we had the best specialists in town, but there was just such a gap in communication. And I was in, I was the one who was, you know, sort of stuck in the middle with all of that. That sounds like a nightmare. And it sounds like something that we certainly hear from patients. So from moms and dads of patients, but you are uniquely placed to understand what was going on because you are a physician. What do you think it was that was problematic from your perspective? I think they call it the ivory tower syndrome. So when you are dealing with an academic medical center, the specialists are in, you know, who are in the center are so busy just providing their care and trying to do what they're trained to do. I guess the best way to describe it is that the senior pediatrician in the practice called me up and he said, Dr. Dr. Bhagat, if you need us to yell at them, let me know. And that really floored me because I, you know, I just finished my residency and my medical training. I was idealistic. Sure, I had seen some, you know, mis- you know, we all see mistakes. We're all human beings, but not to the degree with what we experience. And I suddenly felt that I had to make decisions. And I wasn't trained to make decisions in neurology, much less epileptology. And I really needed somebody to help me with that. So that was sort of my journey over the next, I don't know, even until now, I would say. Give us an example of the kind of problem that he was suggesting or she was suggesting that you would want to yell at them about. Okay, so there was a point at which they were doing a lumbar puncture on my daughter and they just used, you know, topical anesthetic. And they had a couple of students that were trying to do it. They were trying this several times. And my daughter had already been 
punctured n number of times every day from all the testing that they were doing. She was in the hospital, you know, this was probably week two. And I really couldn't bear to let anybody else practice on my daughter. And it's a real struggle because coming from medicine, I know that's how we learn. But when it's your child there, you can only tolerate so much. So we had to force the staff to get an attending to come in and do the LP. Fortunately, we got a fellow who was very trained and I was very skeptical, but she did the lumbar puncture and she got, you know, she got the specimen that she needed to get at that point. That sounds like a really basic thing. Here were students trying to do a lumbar puncture on a child and a child who is distressed. And yet this was something that required you to advocate for your child. And you are a physician, so you understand how to do that. What must it be like for somebody who doesn't have the confidence to do that? I would say it's next to impossible. And one thing that I did learn uh, being the mother of a sick child is that at any given instant, there needed to be two family members next to my daughter. One to stay with my daughter to keep her comfortable and another to go chasing the staff or whoever we needed to chase in the hospital to get the things done that weren't being done on time. It's sort of a golden rule that we've put in place, but that's only after my daughter got sick. If you had asked me that question before she got sick, I never would have presumed that this is what patients experience. Question is why? Why was this happening? Why does it happen every day to patients that the system doesn't seem to respond to that kind of distress? I think it's because of the business of medicine. I mean, I, you know, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here in America, the medicine, you know, changes so rapidly. And it, it really is the business of medicine who are the ones that sort of call the shots and how medicine is to be practiced. And even though we have a very strong patient centered movement, and I've spoken at many of those conferences and participated in them, we are listening to patients, but we're not really. We're not doing the best that we can to change the system so it provides the care that the patients need, if that makes sense. It's almost like token representation. I hate to say that because that's not what we're supposed to be saying coming in the healthcare space. But as a physician mom, I can say that that's what's happening. So you were gamekeeper turned poacher, as it were, to use that phrase, and you were able to see from the other side of the fence, how, how the system is failing. How do you think we could respond now? How could we avoid that kind of thing happening going forward, apart from what you're talking about, which is talking to patients and listening, actively taking into account their thoughts? The business of medicine doesn't allow it. How can we fix that? You know, that's a very good question because when I started, well, what I ended up doing was starting a charity. But when I in back in those in, in the late 1990s, we didn't have a definition of quality health care. The Institute of Medicine had not yet put out its first report on medical errors and, you know, the, the quality chasm. So over the years, I've seen phenomenal models being developed that would really deliver quality health care, like the medical home, which it, which I think is a very good model of comprehensive team-based care and the chronic care model. Sadly, although that was the, you know, the medical home was included in the Affordable Care Act, the business of medicine has gone towards value-based care. And 
I don't see how that supports the medical home. And if we would just stick with what we know works and we would use those models, then we could bring patients to the forefront and deliver the care that we have actually designed and we know can work. But that's why I went back to the business of medicine because I see all of these changes happening right now in front of my eyes. For example, my pediatrician called us up when my daughter got sick. And when she was first admitted to the hospital, she was at a community hospital, not an academic medical center. And although the pediatric group did not have admitting privileges there, somebody from the group came every single day to check on my daughter. Today, because our hospitals are buying up the smaller community hospitals and the physician practices, the physician in the community no longer has admitting privileges and cannot go see the patients that they're caring for in the hospital. So it's a good example of how we develop these quality models of care and then we've gone away from it because of the business of medicine. And frankly, as a mother, I am petrified what happens if my daughter goes to the hospital or my parents go to the hospital. Who's going to be that liaison? That's what the primary care doctor's um, role is for the patient. Yes, I get that. And I get that you need somebody to advocate for you. But I want to go back to that awful night that you had where someone was trying to get cerebral spinal fluid out of your daughter and not making a good job of it. What can we do today to prevent that sort of thing happening? Unfortunately, I don't think anything's changed. Where, you know, patients are powerless when they're in the hospital. I think hospitals are scary, right? And it's exactly for that reason, because it's almost like you give up all of your rights. And actually, as a patient, when you go to the hospital, you need to have faith in the physician. That's a big part of healing and recovery. And so I, you know, I think we're in a very odd situation. I don't think that there's anything patients can do. I accept that there isn't anything patients can do uh, with the caveat that they probably can do something about this. But let's park that for a moment and talk about the senior pediatrician who said to you, if you need somebody to yell at them, I'm here to help you. What would you be doing if you were working in a system that is behaving in this way? Good question. Actually, after my experience with my daughter, after that first year, I withdrew from my medical fellowship. And when I was ready to go back after a couple of years, I couldn't go back into medicine because I knew I would be helpless being at sort of like low on the totem pole, you know, coming in as a fellow and I wouldn't have a voice and whistleblowers uh, would not be looked at very well. So I, I ended up not going back into medicine, but uh, let me sort of, I guess I can give an example what patient, what physicians can do. At another point in time, we, my daughter had been diagnosed with lupus. So she had, she had a rheumatologist. It was, and she had, and we had our primary care physician and we had a neurologist and my daughter was, had a, some, some gastrointestinal infection and she was very sick and she couldn't keep any medications down. We couldn't get the neurologist on call to answer the phone. I had to call the pediatrician. We had to call the rheumatologist who worked worked in the same hospital as a neurologist. And we had both of these people calling to just get somebody to tell us what to do. The answer was simple. She could have gone into the hospital at that point and 
gotten the medication rectally. They could have administered it that way, but they didn't. And she went into status. She had like, I think a 40 minute seizure. And sure enough, we had to take her back to the hospital to the emergency room. So I think the system's broken. And I, I think unless you're what I call a VIP, I think it's very difficult to get good care. It is difficult to get good care, but I would argue that we are all VIPs because we are, as patients, we are why the system exists. If the system doesn't serve, the system is going to have to change. And if you were a medical student listening to this today, how would you feel about where to start that change? I think it starts from the students themselves. I think it starts with questioning the system you know, how it exists and keeping your eye on the ball and being very aware of what patients are going through. I think that's the biggest problem because in training, we're so busy trying to accumulate all this information in a system that's very, you know, uh, how can I say hierarchical? And it's just very stressful to go through medicine, medical school, your residency. And there really isn't a lot of time to breathe. So I think the few systems that are exposing medical students to what patients go through, you know, with in continuity of care, there are several programs I know where a patient will follow a family like for a year, then they have the opportunity to understand what, what they go through. But I think just these one-off visit doesn't let the medical student or the trainees really see what's going on. I think once you're in practice, a lot of physicians get it, of course, because those, those are the physicians that we have you know, treating our family. But I've learned the hard way that I have to really interview doctors and find doctors that care and want to provide good care, that that's, that's, a, that's a part of their mission and their practice. I think we're getting closer to where potentially there might be a solution. So if you're that student standing there in that cubicle with a child who's clearly distressed, and you recognize that this is beyond your skill set, perhaps one of the answers is for students to be given the permission and to actively refuse to do things that are not serving that person at that time and say, here's somebody who needs an experienced clinician to deal with. That's true. And, but that's you're, it's exactly that whole system of medical training where they don't have that permission to do that. Maybe it's going to change because students today have a far different set of, I, I'd say, rules that they have to abide by, which are very different than what we had to abide by when we were training. Yes, I agree. And I would, I would like to think that our students are much more sensitive to that the kind of thing. We train them to be aware of what they're feeling in the moment. And feeling incompetent is certainly one of those feelings. Feeling uncomfortable is one of those feelings. And perhaps acting in an appropriate way in that setting, there's no doubt that people have to practice in order to master the skills and become competent clinicians. But there is a limit to how much that can be imposed on the patient in the bed. Right. I know that experimentation, that's really what the sense is that we're talking about. So in pathology, it's very different. We are trained and we are not allowed to sign out a case until our, until our final year, until we're a final year or we're a fellow, until we have demonstrated that we have mastered the diagnosis. Because in pathology, the person that's going to act up upon our reading and our diagnosis 
is going to be another physician. I find it fascinating that, you know, that it's not the same way in internal medicine or in surgery and in other fields. Since you got involved in the quality models of care question, you must have come across ideas that could create change that we are seeking. What was that? So I'll go back to these models of care, especially for chronic care. Um, I think that the medical home model, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a model that actually was born out of pediatrics for children's special health care needs in the 1980s. And it really started um, out to basically have a central place um, for keeping records. So there would be a continuity in record keeping. But it evolved, I guess, to a framework of care. It's not a place, but it's sort of a framework of care where you have often a primary care physician who is sort of the point person. And he or she communicates with all of the specialists and ancillary healthcare providers. And the definition of quality healthcare is really patient-centered care. That means care the way the patient wants and needs it, you know, patient or family-centered care. So what, what I've seen is that very often patients are brought into the picture, but they're not brought into the picture at the very beginning, which is the design and discovery process. I think that's really critical. If we bring them in later to react, it's a lot different than bringing them in earlier to tell us what they want based on what they've seen and actually for us to react. That I think is a much more, it's a, it's a much more patient-centered model. And then we have to include them at every stage of the process. They have to, they have to be the ones who are, I've had this discussion, who's, who are the judges? In terms of, are they getting the care they need? And I know that's a very tricky question because are the patients capable of making those decisions? But I think that's where we have to start and that's where we have to go. It's very consumer centric. You know, we do this in, you know, in the rest of the world and other sectors. And I think that's a big place where we have to make a big change. I can see how that might change things because you as a patient are deciding on the trajectory of the care that you receive and how it is coordinated. But we often say that he who pays or she who pays often calls the shot. And in many cases, consumers are not paying. It's insurance companies or subsidies from government or or somebody else. How do we influence that side of things? How do we influence them to deliver the kind of care we're talking about? I think that I think everybody has to be at the table. I think that's where the problem comes. I don't think you can leave it to any one group. But I think at the end of the day, if the relationship between the patient and the physician is not protected, we're we're not talking about healthcare anymore. That's I think we're talking about the business of medicine. And most of the physicians I know want to provide good care and help patients get better, stay well. And most of the patients I know want to go to doctors only when they're sick. And I think that that's just not the way medicine is, you know, designed here. I, I hear what you're saying about all these other, the payers, et cetera, but there's no reason why they can't come to the table. Just, it's just a power game. There has to be an incentive for me as a payer to promote a system where the patient effectively is the judge of what is good quality care. And the question is, how do we achieve that? 
the incentive, I mean, I think there's waste, right? So we have waste in, in healthcare. So it's about being minimizing waste. It's about making sure, I mean, if you're not providing proper care, if you have a 12-minute visit or a 15-minute visit, and you're not keeping your patients out of the hospital, they're not taking their medications, there's tremendous waste and there's tremendous missed opportunities. So I, I don't think that the payers, the insurance, the insurance companies and the hospitals have really buckled down and tried to provide the best care that money can buy. I know that's where we're going with value-based care, but again, we're not doing it the right way. But I think everybody has to be at the table. I don't think those conversations have been really had. I think you've hit the bullseye because essentially that's it, isn't it? That if if the system isn't working, it's going to cost more because you're not going to keep people out of hospital. We know that hospital care is so much more expensive than any care we provide in the community. So perhaps that's the answer. The answer is, if you as a payer want this to work and keep people out of hospital and not have not only waste, but not have iatrogenesis, doctor-induced illness, then there is an alternative, which you've just described. Right. And of course, emergency room care is the um, most expensive and the least compensated. So definitely they're looking at readmissions in certain groups. Mostly here, I think it's with the Medicare population and maybe certain conditions, but they need to go beyond that. In the time that you've been working on this, and it sounds like several decades, certainly since your, uh, your daughter was admitted to hospital, have you seen progress? So like I said, I think I saw progress for a while with these developments of these models of the medical home and the chronic care model, but I think we've gone away from it. My particular focus is on a, on a population that's not on the radar at all. So I, I'm really, I know I understand that segment very well. And what's happening with care in general in relation to the, you know, the population that, that I've been working on. And to pivot back to the original story, please tell us that your daughter is well. <laughs> so my daughter got sick when she's eight. She's 33. She has refractory seizures. Two years ago, my, so she has something called complex, complex partial seizures, or they have re-termed it as focal seizures, which are very difficult to treat. And I think are the, the, one, the type of seizure that is most often refractory to medications. So two years ago, they, the epilepsy community started to come out to say that, oh, maybe the cause of focal seizures is inflammation, neuroinflammation. Is it systemic inflammation, peripheral inflammation? Oh, maybe we've been treating focal seizures, you know, with the wrong medications all these years. So she's probably on medications that she shouldn't be on, maybe one or two of them actually work in, you know, mitigating the inflammation. But we're really at the beginning of beginning of R and D for focal seizures and what does inflammation mean in the brain. So she's she's learned to balance a lot of things in her life because she has so many triggers, but she doesn't have the quality of life she needs. And she still has refractory seizures. And she's a lot better, but there's a lot of work that I've put into this to make sure that she's safe, that her brain is as healthy as it can be, that her body is as healthy as it can be. And she's very functional. You know, she doesn't have a good healthcare model. She doesn't have a primary care provider. She, right now, we can't find one that will give her the right care she needs. She has a great epileptologist. 
She doesn't have a psychotherapist to help her with the, you know, emotional issues that come with, you know, having seizures um, interfere in your life. But she's a trooper. She's, um, you know, she's a great young woman. with a lot of potential. So it's not, it's not the best news, but you, as you say, she's resilient and she's coping in as much as she can. And you as a family are coping as best you can. Where do you see yourselves in the next 10 years? With my daughter, I think that there's a lot of changes happening. My son just sent me a link to a company called Nile, and they're using artificial intelligence to predict seizures. So I'm really excited about that because finally somebody's using artificial intelligence for something that matters to us. I'm looking at some other things like she has a color coding system, maybe developing an app around that for a system of communication so she can work with other young people with with chronic conditions so they can have a support system with each other. And I think that because of COVID actually, and now the, the widespread interest in trying to understand inflammation, I think that we are going to have a better chance at trying to understand what inflammation is, you know, is doing to her. And especially um, since COVID has, uh, one of the things it does is causes inflammation and changes in the brain and some, you know, seizures and other neurological events. I have a feeling I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful that maybe we're going to start to see some answers that are going to help her. That's encouraging. And the key thing that I picked up from that is that your son sent you the link to the company that's using AI to predict seizures. And we hear this time and again, that really when things are not going well, it is patients and patient advocates who are making the biggest contribution to improving healthcare. Right. Now he is, so it's not his company, but he keeps an eye on it. And he's very, you know, like he says, he started a little um, business. He's in the middle, you know, starting it right now. And he said, if it does really well, I want to take some money and bring it back into healthcare. And his drive is because what he's seen happen to his sister. Definitely. I think um, families and um, other people who are affected are the ones who are driving a lot of change, at least in the epilepsy world, I see it. Dr. Santi Bhagat, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. You have so much to teach us about what needs to be fixed in what is clearly a broken system. We wish you and your daughter all the very best in the future. Thank you, Moyes. Thank you for inviting me. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of health design.com.